Gospels, this is the greatest story in all the Bible. You've got a baby in a basket floating in the river. You've got a burning bush. You've got ten plagues. You've got a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. You've got a guy leading a mass of people across the Red Sea, which rolls back like a curtain. Woof! And they walk through the water, and they're like, ooh, there's a shark. That's cool. You know, like being in an aquarium. It's unbelievable how God saves his people. You've got stone tablets coming down from a mountain. You've got worship of a golden calf. You've got God's judgment. You've got a tabernacle, a snake on a stick, a Moses glowing face. And through it all, you've got the God who makes all these things happen and who redeems his people and who brings them into covenant with him so that they might worship him. The, the book begins in slavery and ends in worship with the presence of God among his people. It's the story of salvation. It's the story of redemption and deliverance from oppression. But before you get there, you've got to experience the oppression. And that's what chapter 1 is all about, is that God's people are in slavery and they're oppressed. So we're going to look at, we're just going to jump right in because this, this story takes off and it starts ripping from the very opening pages. So, uh, beginning in verse 1, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. And when Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, you don't see it in your English Bible, but it's there in the Hebrew text. And the story begins with one tiny little letter, the Hebrew letter Vav. And it's a word that means and. It begins with and. That's a weird way to start a story. Unless you understand that this is part of a continuing story. That we have joined it, not at the beginning, but in the middle. And it's a continuing story of how God is redeeming a people for himself. And it starts back in the garden where the, when Adam and Eve fell, then immediately after they fell, God gives them the promise of redemption. And then the people, you think that, oh, well, surely people are going to be righteous now because they've seen the consequences. But no, they get more and more unrighteous until Genesis 6, God says, all the thoughts of all their hearts are only evil all the time. I'm going to destroy them all. And so then in Genesis 9, you have the flood and Noah and his family escape. And you have this new beginning and sacrifices and so forth. And then you go, wow, okay, that's great. It's a great start. And then you see Noah, a couple chapters later, drunk and naked in his tent like a redneck on vacation. And you go, this is not going well. <laughs> and, <laughs> and you go, we've got to do something different. So God decides he's going to make a new people, and he starts with Abraham. He calls him out of Ur of the Chaldees, where he was a moon god worshiper. And he calls him out and he says, go to the land, I'll show you. And he takes Sarah and he takes Lot, and that goes bad. 
because they don't have really any sense, it seems. They obey God, but he takes Lot with him, and Lot uh, gets ensnared in Sodom and Gomorrah, and that's a mess. Winds up running for his life, having children with his daughters, establishing nations that later will be opposed to Israel. And you go, these people? And by the way, Abram gets to be 100 years old and his wife 90, and they haven't had any babies yet, even though God promised them children as numerous as the stars. And you go, how does that happen? Well, God miraculously intervenes after they've messed up again with Operation Handmade with Hagar. And you go, these people? These are the ones that you're going to bring redemption to the world through? Really? And then you go, okay, well, surely it'll get better. Well, with the next generation, you have Isaac, and Isaac grows, and he becomes an old man, and he gets married at 40. And he has two boys, Jacob and Esau, and the one Isaac really likes is not the one God chose. And, he wind, and, and, and the older boy, Esau, winds up getting skinned out of his inheritance by his younger brother, having to run for his life, and out of the land of promise. But he's the one that God called. And so you go, how's that going to work? Well, he finally gets back into the land, and then he has 12 sons through four women. Not God's plan. In fact, their names are all listed here in the story at the beginning. He ha- First are listed the, the children of the wife that he didn't like, which is always a promising start. The, the, the six sons of Leah are listed first. And then the younger son of Rachel, the one he wanted, he wanted to marry, but his uncle tricked him into marrying the older daughter first. And he married Rachel later, and he got two sons, Joseph and Benjamin, but Benjamin is listed first because Joseph is listed later as already being in Egypt. And by the way, why is Joseph in Egypt? Because his brothers decided after he was born, since he was dad's favorite, they needed to get rid of him and sold him into slavery down to Egypt. This is a promising family. (laughs) And you go, really, God? Really? These people? And guess what? Yes. These people. Because these people are just as much of a mess as we are. In some cases, worse. Which just magnifies God's grace and God's greatness and God's glory in redeeming the world through the most unexpected means imaginable. And all these people wind up going down to Egypt together and joining Joseph. And through a, a, a convoluted set of circumstances, they wind up being given the best part of the land down on the Nile Delta. And because they are shepherds and the Egyptians hate shepherds, they're able to prosper there and grow. And they take the command in Genesis to be fruitful and multiply. Literally. And they start having big families. And they go from 70 to a huge number of people. And God is fulfilling his promises. You know, all through Genesis, as you read it, you go, oh, man. So a 100-year-old guy and a 90-year-old lady, you got to get together somehow and have a child. How's that going to work? 
Well, God works a miracle and it happens. But at the end of his life, he owns his grave plot and he has one kid. And you go, this is how God's promise is going to come to fruition? God promised him a land and a, a massive blessing and a lot of descendants. He has one kid and a funeral plot to his name. And at the end of Isaac's life, he's got one son who's the son of promise and the other son who's a wild man who becomes an enemy of his other son and all his descendants. And you go, let's see, two generations now, we've got one kid and a funeral plot in a cave. How's this going to happen? Well, then with Jacob, it gets a little bit more obvious. You've got 12 kids. And then all of a sudden, and 70 of them go down to Egypt. And it's just this little group. That's fewer people than in this room. It's just this little group. It's like the center section of seats right here. Goes down to Egypt. And God says, uh, all of you all are going to become a nation. What would you have thought of that? Really? Okay. I mean, it's not even a good town. It's just a little group of people. And God makes them massively prosperous. And he protects them. And he preserves them in that place because the Egyptians, because they're shepherds, want nothing to do with them. And so they become this massive group of people. It says twice they multiplied. They grew exceedingly strong. The land was filled with them. I mean, they're spreading out. They're everywhere. There's a lot of people. And that leads to our first problem. The problem is that the Egyptians begin to get nervous about all these foreigners running around. Let's pick up the story there in verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from this land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And they built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of them, of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. And made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick. And all kinds of work in the field. And in their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. The situation has taken a turn. Joseph was prime minister of Egypt. And as a result, in fact, when his father Jacob died, he had a whole entourage of Egyptian noblemen and officials who went up to watch Joseph mourn for and bury his father back in the land. He had a high status. He was just below the Pharaoh of Egypt. And Pharaoh, by the way, was the, it was like, it was far more important role in the ancient world at this time than being president of the United States. They were the sole solitary empire across the entire globe. Their power didn't quite stretch that far, but they were the leading civilization of the world. 
Everybody else is people living in little thatch huts and caves and tents everywhere else. And the Egyptians had a civilization. They built pyramids and they built the Sphinx and they ruled North Africa and the Middle East. They were the leading empire of the globe. And Joseph is second in command and Pharaoh has told him, you can put your family wherever you want. Down in the best part of the land would be the great spot for them. And that's where they went. But then, over time, their situation turned. As often happens, people forget their history. And the new king comes to power and he doesn't owe any debts, Joseph. He doesn't remember what happened, or if he does, he doesn't remember in such a way that it changes his behavior. He felt no current obligation to the man who lived a long time ago, and there is on top of that power to be gained in the present. Somebody once said that an excuse is a thin skin of reason wrapped around a lie. And this Pharaoh comes to power and starts making those kinds of excuses for the evil he wants to do to God's people. Because notice what he says. He says, they might fight against us and then leave the land. Well, what's wrong with them wanting to leave? They're not from there anyway. And if you want to get rid of them, tell them to go. But that's not what he wants to do. He says, you know, there's a significant minority group living in our country, down in the best and most fertile part of it. And I'd like to establish a new capital down in that part of the country. And these foreigners, therefore, represent a problem to be solved and a resource to be exploited. And so he brings his fellow Egyptians in on the idea, and he says, you know, these foreign minority people, they're not just peaceable shepherds minding their own business. No, no. They're a fifth column. They're just waiting for the right enemy to invade Egypt so they can overthrow us all. And his advisors and his fellow Egyptians are only too willing to go along with the idea Well, something's got to be done about those Hebrews. And so under the pretext of saving themselves from war, later on they go to war against Israel. And they overwhelm them, and they enslave them. And they solve the problem of what to do with all those minority immigrants. Because enslaved people are too worried about survival to rebel. And besides that, there's a massive benefit of lots of free labor Uh, that we can use to build things like cities, like Pithom and Ramses. Uh, Pithom means the house of Atum, who is an Egyptian god. And Ramses means born of Ra, another Egyptian god. Uh, Ramses may be one of the ancient names for the city of Tanis. Those of you who have seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, remember that's what they're digging up, where the Ark is buried there in the Well of the Souls, right? Uh, Ramses may be the name for that actual place. It was a real place. The ark is not stored there. But nevertheless, it was a real place. And it's actually in a warehouse in Washington. But in any case, um, um, it was a real place. 
And the Egyptians' slaves, the Hebrews, built it. And it was built as a center for royal power. It was where the treasuries of the royal house were located, these two cities. That's what store cities mean. And these two places became prominent in the center, as the center of Egypt's monarchy. You know, the Nile flows north, different than the Mississippi. The Mississippi flows north to south. The Nile flows from the south to the north. And so they were located down in the south, and they moved to the north, down to the delta on the Mediterranean. And as they began to do that, they needed new palaces and new cities to live in. And so these were built by the Hebrews. But if you look at these, at verse 13 and 14, you get a sense of how brutal the Egyptians were to their new slaves. Underline these words in your text here. If you've got the ESV, this is how it's translated. Ruthlessly. Work as slaves. Hard service in mortar and brick. Work in the fields. Work. Ruthlessly. Work as slaves. You can almost hear, if you put it in a little bit of a rhythm, you can almost hear the crack of the taskmaster's whip with each one of those words. Ruthlessly, work as slaves, hard service, work in the field, work. Ruthlessly, work as slaves, right? And the whole reason that all those words are stacked on top of one another is that you're to get the idea that this is brutality on a massive scale. And God's people are under the boot heel of the Egyptian monarch. And they are ruled and dominated and oppressed. But no matter how hard they were oppressed, this is the funny part, they were still being blessed by God. And God was still keeping His promises to Abraham that He was going to have a lot of descendants. And so... The more they beat them, the more they go home to their houses and have babies. And they continue to have more and more babies until the, the harder the work becomes, the more babies they have. And they just continue to multiply and multiply and multiply. Why? Because God, even in the midst of His oppression, even in the midst of the oppression of the Egyptians, is blessing and keeping His promises to His people. No matter how bad it gets, God has not forgotten them, and He is still blessing them, and He is still keeping His promise. Abraham. And if you think about Pharaoh for just a minute, Philip Graham Ryken, uh, pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church, uh, formerly and now president of Wheaton College, he wrote this. He says, Pharaoh is the image of a man in rebellion against God because he resents God's people, he rejects God's promises, and he resists God's plan at every turn. And what he does is literally satanic in the way that he resists God's plan and and rejects his promises and resents God's people. The more God's promises are fulfilled, the more he hates them. And the more they keep being fruitful and multiplying, just as God told His people to do, the more that their increase fills 
Pharaoh with fear and hatred. And God's plan was to give these people a land of their own, but Pharaoh wanted them to never leave for their own lands and always be his slaves. And so the stage is set, and it's the beginnings of a contest between, spiritually speaking, between God and Satan. Their representatives are Moses, whom we haven't met yet, and Pharaoh, who's going to win. And it's a theological contest also directly even between Pharaoh and God. Because Pharaoh, although he is never named, we don't get the identity of who this, this man is. I have some theories. But we're, he's never named in the text. And the reason he's not named, I think, is because Pharaoh at this time is worshipped as a god. He is believed to be the, in, the living incarnation of one of the gods. And he, his rule, therefore, is, is not just, uh, this is the guy who's our king. This, his rule was theological. He said, I am the living incarnation of one of the deities. And so as an example, Hut Moses is one of the Egyptian pharaohs. means born of Hoth who's the god for medicine. Ramses, born of Ra. I am descendant of the sun god. I'm born of the sun god. This is a setup between God and the man who has set himself up as God and as an enemy of the true God. Who's going to win? I'll give you a hint. It ain't Pharaoh. All right? <laughs> uh, Pharaoh's going to be defeated. And... His plans for the Hebrews and his thoughts of whose land they should live in and his plans for what's going to happen to them and the promises he makes to them are all going to get broken. But God's plans and God's promises and God's purposes are all going to get fulfilled. And since Pharaoh's plan is so far not working out, because the more ruthlessly he oppresses them, the more they multiply, he comes up with a new plan population control, and he, he gives it out in verse 15 and following. He says this, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see, and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now before this, does anybody need a hint that Pharaoh is an evil man? No, but he underlines it and puts a few exclamation points after his evil. Uh, there is no good and moral way to enslave someone. But just in case you wanted to accelerate your evil a little further, try and fantasize. 
uh, or a- actually massive genocide on a, on a population-wide scale. He calls the two women who head up uh, the group of Hebrew midwives, and he gives them a simple, easy-to-understand command, kill all the boys. And they are to wait until the exhausted mother gives birth, and then they do a quick check and smother all the newborn sons. And presto, all of the future military threat problems are solved. Pharaoh didn't count on these two heroic women doing what God's people have always done, which is where the commands of men and the laws of God are in conflict, they obey God. Their names, by the way, you know, isn't it interesting? Wouldn't you like to know who, which Pharaoh we're talking about? I mean, is this Amenhotep II? Is this Tutmosis? Is this Seti I? Who is this, right? They're not enlisted. But these two slave women, their names are given. You ever think about that? Their names, by the way, mean splendid and beautiful. A great name. They're fitting for these two ladies. Because they are heroic. They are, as uh, I heard Chuck Swindoll call Daniel and his three friends, three quarters backbone and the rest gristle. All right? (laughs) These two ladies are not going to be cowed. This Pharaoh is king of them, king of their people, king over the known world. And he gives them an immoral, evil, wicked, nasty order, and they will not follow it. They fear Yahweh their God more than Pharaoh, the tin-pot claimant to be God. And there are things worse than death, and they fear being condemned for, by God for what is evil. And so they don't do it. And when Pharaoh calls them to account, they tell him a tall story that just happens to coincide with his fears. So he believes it. And they tell him this stretcher. Well, now, the Hebrew women, you've got to understand, they're not like those Egyptian ladies. I mean, they're like, you know, out hanging up their wash, you know, squat down, boom, out comes the kid, they're back to hanging wash again, you know. <laughs> That's the nature of the story. They, they give birth before that we get there. Now, does that make any sense? Why would there be Hebrew midwives unless they were needed? Right? Obviously, these gals have an actual job, not just to show up afterwards and go, hey, nice looking baby. Right? (laughs) They are there to do something to help these poor ladies have their children. But they tell him this tall story because that's it plays on his fears perfectly. Because he fears that, man, all these Hebrews, they're having so many kids, I don't know what to do with them all. And they tell him this tall story, and he buys it. And God, and here's the point. Did they stretch the truth? Yeah, that's safe to say. Did God honor them anyway? Absolutely. They did what was right in the eyes of God. When 
when a wicked ruler was planning genocide against the people of God, they protected them. By the way, I pray this never happens, but if, as an example, you become a person who's a member of the underground church, as has to happen in many countries around the world, and there is a knock at your door, excuse me, we're from state security, and we want to know the names of the people who meet with you. What people? is the appropriate answer. Okay? Do you have any Jews? Uh, I've never seen one. I don't know what they look like. There might be 75 of them in my attic, but I'm not telling that guy that. I, I haven't seen any lately. I, I don't know. Aren't they all gone? Unrighteous people like Pharaoh do not have the right to the truth. And God honors these women. Not because they lied, but because they feared God. And God is the real God. And He is winning, even in the midst of slavery. And God blesses these women, and He gives them families of their own. And ironically, you know, the ironic thing about that is the very thing that Pharaoh was intending to prevent is the very thing that begins to happen with the women whom he gave the order. They are even having their own. Now, we didn't get very far today, but we have made an important beginning. This gives you this chapter one gives you the setup. It reminds you, uh, it ties the story back to Genesis. And back to the earlier story of how God is bringing redemption to the world through his people. And it tells us what is happening and why God's people need to be delivered. And it tells us about the evil of Pharaoh and how God is working even in the midst of that evil. And it teaches us, I think, some really great things about trusting God in the midst of great suffering. And... And I want to just draw our attention to just three things I think we ought to learn from this passage. Number one, that God's promises to his people persist despite appearances and opposition. God's promises to his people persist despite appearances and opposition. God doesn't actually get mentioned a whole lot in this chapter. Not like he does later on. He's there, but mentions of him appear only with reference to the Hebrew midwives who feared him and were blessed by him. But notice the Israelite situation does not change, except for the worse. Throughout this whole chapter, it goes from pretty good to worse to a lot worse to much worse. But God is still blessing. And in fact, these people are going to remain in slavery for 400 years under rulers like Pharaoh. Now, think about that, 400 years for a second. 1620, the pilgrims land at, Pym at Plymouth Rock. We're not to 400 years from those guys. 
400 years, God left his people in slavery in Egypt. Do you ever think that in all that time, that anybody who was an Israelite, as the whip came down on their back one more time, wondered where God was at in all of that? I'll bet they did. But God was there, and he was blessing, and he was multiplying his people just as he promised Abraham. Because what's the one thing you see? No matter how bad it got, the more they spread and multiplied, God is keeping his promise to Abraham. And you may be in a situation yourself, personally, I, I, I don't think anybody here has ever been enslaved. But you may be in some difficult circumstances, and it does, may not seem totally obvious to you how God is working in them, and how God's presence is still there, and how his promises to you are still being kept. You know what? God remains God of the Exodus. The God who allows suffering to occur for a while, but then he gets you out. The God who brings you through. The God who blessed and protected and saved and preserved his people. And kept every one, every single one of his promises to Abraham were kept. And Abraham, remember, is the guy from whom every Jew descends physically and every believer in Jesus Christ descends God is still keeping his promise to Abraham even today. Second thing we ought to see in this text that God's salvation comes through suffering. You ever wonder why God allowed his people to be in slavery? You go, well, wait a minute. How did we go from prime minister of Egypt, protected, preserved, uh, blessed, by God in the best part of the land to, well, you, the obvious place to go from there is into slavery. Why did God allow that to happen? I want to give you three reasons. Because the story of Exodus gives us at least three reasons. That a good God who loves his people would allow this to happen. First of all, suffering allowed them to grow into a mighty people. One thing is clear, that the more they suffered, the more babies they had, right? And suffering allowed them to grow. Pharaoh's yoke made them into a great nation. They grew through suffering. By the way, that's still the pattern God follows. In a spiritual sense, that is what he does with each of us. Amen? You can take all of the pleasures and all of the enjoyable experiences and all of the things that all the fun times that you've had at Disney World or riding roller coasters at Kings Island or the day you got married or the day your kids were born. You can roll all of those up together and they will not equal the change that came about in you and the growth that happened as you look to the Lord in the most difficult, harrowing, hard circumstances of your life. Amen? God allows suffering to bring growth. Number two, suffering preserved God's people as distinct. When the Israelites came to Egypt, they're slowly being assimilated into Canaanite culture. They're starting to marry Canaanite women. 
they're starting to act like Canaanites. Remember Levi and Simeon? They tell this big story to the men of Shechem about how all of them, if they get circumcised, that they'll intermarry with them. And then they break in after the guys are still healing up, and they kill them all. They're acting like Canaanites. And God, through uh, an amazing set of circumstances, brings all those people, that whole family, down into Egypt and puts them into one place where their occupation separates them from everybody else. And then God underlines that by separating them from everybody else culturally because Egypt was a place that had a lot of attraction. It was rich. It was prosperous. It was the leading empire of the world. And Joseph had already married an Egyptian woman. And it would have been really easy for them to just slowly, 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 over generations, be assimilated into Egyptian culture and disappear as the distinct people of God. And God allowed them to go into slavery and experience oppression that they might remain distinct. And by the way, again, God does the same thing today. You ever wonder why Christians are on everybody's target list? That the one group of people it is safe in our culture to make fun of and to mock and to make the butt of jokes and so forth culturally and, and, and socially is evangelical Christians. You ever wonder why that is? And why God allows that to happen? It's because when your membership and your identity in the people of God costs you something, it helps preserve you distinct as God's people. That you are not like everybody else. And you don't float downstream like every other dead fish. Amen? That is the idea. That God allows suffering to come into your life to preserve you distinct from everybody else, just as he did them. And the last reason is that suffering made them look for the Savior. That with suffering coming on them, what did they cry out for? Deliverance. And when you go through stuff, what do you do? Well, I can tell you one thing that happens when suffering comes into my life. I miss a lot fewer quiet times. Amen? You start looking for Jesus, and you start going, Lord, I've got to have some help down here. Right? When everything is going well, you don't necessarily look for the Savior, but when it's going south, you go, man, i got to get God involved in my life. And that's what happened to them. They began to look for the Savior for deliverance. Last thing I'll tell you, if you get nothing else out of the Hebrew midwife story, know this, that God's people fear Him more than murderous men. God is not neutral between right and wrong, between life and death. God stands with those who fight for life and who will ignore what the law says in some cases, that what is right might be done. Now, there's all kinds of contemporary application I might draw on that, I'm already over time, so I'm not going to do it. But nevertheless, 
God is not neutral between right and wrong, between life and death. This last week, the Sanctity of Life Sunday, 41 years in this country, we have allowed people to murder their children and in some cases funded it with our government. What do you think God thinks about that? And the women and the men who go to these crisis pregnancy centers and who, who sometimes are able to convince these ladies that God is on the side of life. You know what they are? Splendid and beautiful. They're heroic. And God will honor them. God is not neutral between you. God is on the side of right side of Where God's people are oppressed, and where, where wrong is done, legally or otherwise, God stands with those right. right. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we worship you and we praise you as the God of the exodus, the God of deliverance, the God of rescue. The God who pulls us out of slavery to our Pharaoh, Satan, and who delivers us from sin and death and hell and carries us into the ultimate land of promise. Father, we pray that like the Israelites at the end of the book, that we might worship you and declare your glory because we are looking for the day when, like them, you will dwell among us. pray in Jesus' name.